Welcome to the historic Ocean House, a luxurious hotel that pays homage to New England's golden age of hospitality. With timeless elegance and renewed civility, this treasured resort is the setting for our special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series. Each program features nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation, hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. You'll hear fascinating conversations with exceptional authors like Chloe Milos, Avery Carpenter, Patty Callahan-Henry, Victoria Christopher-Murray, Kitty Couric, and more. WCRI is pleased to partner with the Ocean House to present this ongoing series, which brings you the best and the brightest of the literary world. Now, let's take you to the Ocean House. Welcome, everyone. My name is Lindsay McAwicky. I'm the event manager at Bank Square Books in Mystic, Connecticut, and we're thrilled that you're joining us for our Ocean House author series. Just a few housekeeping items before we begin. This event is being recorded by WCRI for future podcasts and broadcasts. So if everyone could please take a moment to silence their cell phones, that would be greatly appreciated. And with that all said and out of the way, it's time for our introductions. Julie Gersenblatt holds a doctorate in curriculum and instruction from Teachers College, Columbia University. Her essays have appeared in the Huffington Post and Cognoscenti, among others. When not writing, Julie is a college essay coach, as well as a producer and on-air host for A Mighty Blaze. A native New Yorker, Julie now lives in coastal Rhode Island with her family and one very smart, she Sean Poo. Daughters of Nantucket is her first novel. Welcome, Julie. Julie will be in conversation tonight with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Deborah's thrillers examine puzzles of identity. Reef Road hit Publishers Weekly's bestseller list, Good Morning America's top 15 list, and was an indie next pick by the American Booksellers Association for January 2023. Ruby Falls won the Zibby Award for Best Plot Twist in 2021, and Finding Mrs. Ford was hailed by Forbes, Book Riot, and Good Morning America's best of lists in 2019. She began as an actress on All My Children and in multiple films before transitioning to the role of story editor at Miramax Films, developing Emma and early versions of Chicago and A Wrinkle in Time. With her husband Chuck, Deborah restored the Avon Theater, the Ocean House Hotel, the Deer Mountain Inn, the United Theater, and numerous Main Street revitalization projects in both Rhode Island and the Catskills. Julie and Deborah will now discuss Julie's wonderful novel, Daughters of Nantucket, and after that, we'll open it up to questions from the audience. So if you raise your hand, we'll walk around with the microphone because we want the folks listening on the radio in the future to be able to hear your wonderful questions. And now, without any further ado, please join me in welcoming Julie Gersenblatt and Deborah Goodrich-Royce. So, about Daughters of Nantucket, um, what I just basically say is it's a novel set around Nantucket's Great Fire of 1846, and it's about three women's lives intersecting in the days leading up to and immediately following the fire. And the three points of view, each woman has their own personal dramas and secrets and um, histories, and it's sort of all their personal lives and the crises that they're facing come to a head just as the fire hits the town. You choose three specific women, real women, fictitious women, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about why those three women, sure. and who's real, who's not, and why you decided on the combination of the three of them. Great. 
So I'm going to back up a little bit to talk about how I even came up with the idea for this, Great. and that'll lead me into why, why I picked the women I did. So um, I've been going to Nantucket since the late 1970s. Um, I love the island, uh, but I, up until this project, I only wrote contemporary novels, and I didn't think about historical as where I fit as an author. However, every time I wrote a contemporary novel and got an agent, I did not get the book published. So I was not finding success. It wasn't until I stumbled on this story by reading Nat Philbrick's History of the Island, um, Away Offshore, that I came across the fire and felt sort of bad that I didn't know about it as somebody who's been going to Nantucket forever and ever. And I, I you know, in the two paragraphs about the fire in that whole book, I just was hooked on it and I wanted to know more. Um, and so I went to the bookstore, Mitchell's Book Corner on Nantucket, and I said to them, give me everything you've got on the fire. I, I want to know more. And they said, we have nothing. So they said, go to the other bookstore. So I went to the other bookstore on the island, which is Nantucket Bookworks, and they were like, oh, somebody self-published a history of the fire. You know, here it is. And it was just a guy, sort of like a, a visitor to the island like me, loved the history of the place, learned about the fire, researched it, and then decided to write this. And by the end of reading that, I knew I had the story. I knew I had the framework that I never had before, which was <coughs> this really beating heart of a plot. And in the past, I had these ideas for characters, contemporary women in their 30s who something happens to them, but I didn't know what happened to them. And I'd search and search and search. And a woman in her 40s who, I thought that one would be better. Uh, <laughs> just wait. Just wait. Right, women in her 50s. So it was like, as I aged, my characters aged, but there still wasn't like this central tension to the novel. And I realized with this fire, I could see people, I could see characters who had something very big to lose and some kind of stakes. And so that's how I got to the point where I could then think of who to populate this novel with. Because if you have a disaster, but you don't care about the people who are there, it, it's just sort of like that thing on the highway where you drive by and spend a moment sort of fascinated by it, but keep going. So um, I thought, OK, so who are these women? I thought about, um, first, I thought, OK, the one person I knew from Nantucket from history would be a whaler. And so then naturally, I thought of a whaling captain's wife. This story became the inverse to what we know about Nantucket, which is very masculine. It's men going out to sea, spending years hunting whales. It's Moby Dick. It's all of that. So I thought, well, I can tell the story of the women on the island who were doing everything else and keeping the island afloat while the men were doing that. Um, so that's how I came up with Eliza Macy. Um, she was the first of my three characters to enter my head because she's a whaling captain's wife. And I thought, well, what would that mean? And that meant she would be lonely. Um, and that much of her life would be spent without her husband. And of the 20 years of their marriage, I think I say something that they've been on land together for about nine months of 20 years of marriage. 
because as they overfished the seas, they had to go further and further afield to find these whales. And so ships would be gone for up to four years hunting in the Pacific and then getting back home. Um, and then getting home, spending a little time at home and going back out. So Eliza Macy is lonely. She is a little desperate when the book opens because she um, is financially stressed. Her husband hasn't been home for four years and the trip before that was not successful. He came back with nothing and um, no nothing to explain for his lack of making money. Um, and as the saying is, you didn't make money until your ship comes in. So it was all theoretical and you could pay on credit and write your name and hope to make money in the future to pay off your debts. And so that's Eliza. Um, she has three daughters, part of why the book is called Daughters of Nantucket. And she's, um, she's also just a, she's not her best self when the book opens. She receives a letter from her husband saying, Something like, um, I know I said I'd be home this summer, but something's come up and uh, just trust me and take care of everything and I'll be home when I can, with no further explanation. And so she feels really far, she feels distanced, not just physically, but emotionally from Henry at this point. Um, so that's Eliza's story. Then I thought, who would be a good counterpoint to this very conventional, traditional whaler's wife? And the natural choice was a real person from history, Mariah Mitchell. Um, Mariah Mitchell is really a daughter of Nantucket. She is one of the most famous women to come from there. She's America's first female professional librarian, America's. She's also America's first female professional astronomer. Um, yeah, she's like the first lady of STEM. Um, <laughs> she spoke many languages, mathematician, which you have to be, I guess, to be an astronomer, but don't ask me more because I don't get it. Um, and it was an important thing to, to be able to know the stars and read the stars because um, because whalers needed to know their position out at sea and requ required um, knowledge of astronomy. And so she trained boys who would then go out to sea um, in navigating the stars. Um, she also, as librarian, brought famous speakers to the island uh, for the Athenaeum. You know, uh, she was friendly with Ralph Waldo Emerson and um, Audubon, and she got his original artwork of, you know, giant books of birds, and she, um, she brought um, people to the island who had never, you know, basically it made Nantucket a cultural center and um, really an important place for, for learning. And People, ships would pass through Nantucket on their way elsewhere or from elsewhere and bring her incredible objects like she collected uh, seashells and skins from animals and all of these things and created the first natural history museum well before New York City did. Um, so she's impressive, interesting. She's from a Quaker background, which means she was well-educated and believed in equality for men and women, um, early suffragists, early abolitionists. That's what the Quaker, um, you know, Quaker ideology brought to America. 
And so she's sort of forward thinking ahead of her time and makes a good counterpoint to somebody like Eliza who's a little more traditional and stuck in her ways. And they are friendly and also like kind of good to bounce off each other in times of stress. And then I thought, who would be the third person? Um, and the more research I did, the more I learned about um, the black community, which was sort of a thriving cultural center, but away from the main area of town in its kind of own parallel universe. And um, that's where I created Meg Wright from. I imagine that she was the daughter of a famous whaling captain, um, someone like Absalom Boston, who has a little cameo in the book, but is a real person. He was the first black whaling captain with an all-black crew to go out to sea and hunt whales and came back very wealthy. It was too dangerous as a black person to go out to sea, especially as a captain. You could be sold into slavery if you were captured in the South, mm. even if you had been born free in the North. So um, he stayed on Nantucket wisely and invested his money in a civic center. So I imagined my third character, Meg, to come from this background of great opportunity, wealth, and knowledge as much as one could at the time for a black person in America, born free, father born free, grandfather, um, a manumitted slave who won his own freedom. And um, she and her husband, Benjamin, are trying to move their shop to Main Street and be the first black owners of a shop on Main Street. So um, that, those are my three characters. She also is pregnant when the book opens, so you gotta feel bad for her. It's July. She's pregnant. Um, yeah, me too. And um, no air conditioning, though, for Meg. And um, so she is, the per and she has a child in the schools, which, as I was doing research, I learned the schools spent seven or eight years dealing with whether they should integrate. Nantucket was ahead of mainland Massachusetts in abolishing slavery. They abolished slavery 10 years before the rest of, of Massachusetts did. They're, yeah. Um, and being an island, they kind of ruled themselves and made their own decisions. So great, good for them, they made that decision. But then they were late to integrate schools. And Massachusetts was on them about that. But they used sort of the same thing. We're an island. You can't tell us what to do. And for eight years, this was a burning. So you see where like the fire. So there was like a fire before there was a fire. There were years of contentious debate about school integration. And the idea, I think, was we, are, we believe in equality, but maybe not so much in our own backyards. So let's talk about structure. Yeah. Um, I like a book where you know the thing is coming. It's, it's no spoiler. You know you're headed up to the fire. I mean, think about a movie like Titanic. Yeah. yeah. You know what's coming. So that lends a certain immediacy to the action. It lends this ticking clock, which I think is very effective. And then you divide the book into three acts, which I also like, which I always follow with the three-act structure. It's like a film. So your, your sections are called Heat, Flame, and Ashes, which mm -hmm. I like very much as well. How did you come to that structure? Was it your intention? Did you fall into it? Talk about all the structural sure. elements. Great question. So I did actually 
think once I realized I was writing, a, I think of this as like a disaster film that I was writing, um, and I, uh, which I totally didn't, you know, think of myself as doing. I did read. I watched Titanic again. I made my daughter watch it with me, and um, The Perfect Storm and In the Heart of the Sea. At which point, my daughter was like, "I am never getting on a boat." <laughs> and also, I hate you. <laughs> And then I was like, but, but it was so good for me to see these again and really study that, that kind of arc. We know, you walk into Titanic, you know the ship's going down, no surprise. So what is it that gives it tension? And I realized it's actually that. It's us knowing something and having that information that the people in the book or the film don't. And so there's this natural tension that I wanted to lean into and then so in terms of structure, part of that was a friend in my writing class, which is in Boston. When I moved from New York to Rhode Island, I met um, a writer in the class, uh, the teacher of the class, at an event sort of like this. And I was talking to her about writing. Um, and she's like, nobody asks me that question. Are you a writer? And I was like, oh, that's right. I had to move. I forgot. I'm a writer. She invited me to her writing. She's like, I was like, I have like half a book in a drawer. She's like, get to Boston and join my master novel workshop. And that group changed my life. And that's really why I'm here now. And structure was a huge part of what that group gave me. And a few people in particular, my friend Mark Cecil being one of them, who is really into three acts, you know, story structure and outlining and really planning those kinds of things. And so he said in, in workshop, I want to know even more of this ticking clock. I want to know when the fire is going to happen. And he's like, I want like a calendar or something. Uh, and so I, so I did that. You open this book and you know what day it is and you know how many days until the fire. And so you're reading with this sort of tightened anticipation and heightened anticipation. And so then and I've heard from readers who are like, you know, the problem with that is I was going to go to bed and I turned the page and it said, day of the fire. And I was like, oh no, now I got to stay up for another hour. So, but it works. I think it also like is including the reader in the joy and fun of the book and of the structure because I'm like, I'm telling you, I'm giving you information to keep you like along with me in this position of power over these characters. So the three acts then become sort of the bigger part, you know, overarching thing. And you said like film. So Heat is the building of the tensions. Um, actually, I'm doing an event on Monday with Rachel Beanland. She wrote uh, The House is on Fire. It's, yeah, so somebody put it together. Yes, Zibby Owens said to me, is anybody getting you and Rachel together? Because you wrote fire books and they came out a month apart. <laughs> and then the, you know, in Atlanta, they, they put it together. So we're doing this event there. But she starts, her book starts with the fire. It's the Virginia, um, the Virginia like theater that burned in 1811. Her book starts with the fire and then that propels everything that happens after. The fallout from the fire is what um, kind of like is the engine in her book. Right. And, with, and it's the inciting incident. And so in my book, the inciting incident is the town hall meeting where you see everybody and you know they're there for different purposes and you see the, those struggles of social, political, and personal dramas 
and then the fire becomes the last, sort of the climactic thing, sort of more like the Titanic structure. So heat is the building of all that, flames is the actual fire, and ash is the fallout from, from that. Um, and I think it works. I, and I, I do too, it's very effective. It, uh, I, I like a, a clock like that, and it, it works really well. We'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House Author Series here on WCRI. And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. As a contemporary writer with a certain perspective on both racial and gender issues, writing a period piece about both women who are leading non-traditional lives and a, a black woman whose life is somewhat non-traditional for that era. How do you put it together, because you do very well, so that it's believable and you don't lean too much toward our modern sensibility, mm -hmm. but yet you're not you know, making us slam the book in a rage? How do you do that? Right. So I think it, people have said to me, even though it's, set, it's historical, it feels contemporary in mm. some sort of way. And I, I like that. I appreciate that. Um, to do that, the more I read about what was happening at the time, the more it sort of paralleled what was happening today. There were issues of race in the, you know, in the schools. Um, there's you know, a question about the Basically, I'm going to back up. I, the thing, I was scared about writing historical fiction having never done it, so there was that. And so the first thing was I had to think about the language I was going to use so that it wasn't, it didn't feel like old-fashioned in the way of, like, when you try to read, read Hawthorne now or Shakespeare now, I mean, Shakespeare, forget it, but even just like, <laughs> just like older American, you know, sentence structure and syntax, I was like, well, obviously I'm not going to do that. But I want to feel like it's of the time. So the first 40 pages were the hardest thing I ever wrote in my life, just because I had to try to get that sense of time and place down in writing that was appropriate, but not like, not like, like. You know, like you can't like talk like that. So I was like finding that. And then I was scared about that. Once I got over that, I was scared about two other things, which were um, taking, um, a real person from history and giving her life that was maybe not her real life. So Mariah Mitchell, um, we don't know anything about what happened to her during that period of time because of something that's a spoiler, so if you read the book you know, I won't say, but um, we, we don't have records. Even though she, was a, she became a very famous person, we have tons of writing from her after the fire, but we have nothing from her from before or during. So when I met with the head of the Mariah Mitchell Association, I said, so does that mean I can like make stuff up, you know? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, well then, you know, we know that she became a famous this and that and the other thing. What we don't have is any sense of a love life for Mariah Mitchell. Can I give her romance and she said I mean I don't see why not you know people fictionalize real people all the time but then I was like well could she have been gay and she and the head of the Mariah Mitchell Association sort of gave me the biggest shrug in the history of shrugs I was like 
And I was like, it's not the first time somebody asked you that, huh? And she was like, <laughs> And so I was like, that's enough for me to feel like, when you look now, so some of it is like looking now at then, a woman at that time could not have Obviously, you know, had she been gay, she, it, would be, it wouldn't be in the history. And so, you know, the absence of that left room for, you know, if she had fallen in love with a man, we would know about it. So we wouldn't know about this. So I thought, I'm going to play with that. That felt dangerous to me because she's a real person from history, and I certainly don't want to out somebody who can't speak for themselves. Um, but my writing group, kept reminding me, you're writing fiction. You're exploring something interesting and important. And when they read those 100 pages, I was so nervous about it because I, I just felt like this was something I believed for this character. I wanted her to have a love story, um, where Meg's is about ambition and getting this store, and Eliza's is about um, not being you know, basically racist in her views. And this one I wanted as love. So, oh, now I can hear myself more. <laughs> Is that better? Should I talk no, like no, this? We can hear you. Fine. So I, um, so I brought it to my writing group as, as an issue. I gave them 100 pages that basically had this part of the story in it. And um, everybody was home because it was COVID. And we were taking lots of walks, like the kids and the dog. And then sometimes it'd be like my husband and the dog, and me and the husband, or the dog and the kids. And the day before my workshop, I was so nervous that my husband was like, don't, nobody walk with mom. <laughs> Just like leave her alone until she gets through this workshop with her, you know, Mariah Mitchell, the lesbian from history. <laughs> And so nobody talked to me. And then I did the workshop from home, because it was Zoom. And it went well. And everybody really felt confident and comfortable with what I had done with this character, because, and reminded me, it's my character. I can do with something you know, within reason that feels um, right. And then I, the next day, I took a walk with my daughter. And she came out to me. Wow. And yeah. Wow. Yeah, so she, she said, um, she didn't even have the language. It was the first time she'd ever sort of said it out loud. And she said, I like girls. And I sort of stopped in the middle of the street. And I said, are you saying you're gay? And she said, yes, like your character. Wow. Like that woman you were talking about. You were so nervous. And I knew that you would care. Wow. So, so. What, a, what a, an incredible kind of <laughs> I know. kismet moment. Back to the idea of, of further exploring historical fiction. I mean, you think about something like The Crown. So we all feel that we've been in the bedroom with, with Elizabeth <laughs> and Philip, and we know what they've said yeah, to each other. We were true. there. So, you know, there's, um, I think there's, with her, historical fiction, there's something to the more recent historical fiction mm -hmm. where we can get uh, confused by being confused. But then, but this is a lot longer right. ago. But I have a question. So, fact checking. I read something recently, a scene in the 1960s, and they referred to the dentist putting on his latex gloves. Oh, no. And I'm like, no I am old enough to know 
dentists did not wear latex gloves until the 80s when HIV AIDS oh, right. was out. It they just right. didn't happen. So where was the editor of that young writer mm. to tell her that, no, darling, those, that, that didn't happen then? So that's one thing in recent history where mm -hmm. there are people old enough to remember. But when you're writing in the 1840s, did you have those issues of mm -hmm. how would someone have washed a dish or taken a yeah. bath or gotten from A to B? Yeah. How, and how did you deal with that? So um, first, because I, I'm thinking about, so getting back to the other issue, just deciding to make this character gay was an issue of you know, one thing, but the, I feel like I didn't answer your other question about race, which was deciding to write as from the point of view of a black person was another scary thing. Um, but I think you just have to imagine yourself in the time period, which is, you know, and the people were people, and so you give them humanity and hope that, you know, whatever your whoever you're trying to be is sympathetic, empathetic, etc. So that's my answer for both of those things, you know, talking about race and talking about sexuality and all of those things from the time. Um, in terms of pot washing, etc., the stoves, I did a lot of research on stoves, even though there's like one, there's not even like really a scene, they were, there's just like reference to the stoves. Um, I also was like indoor plumbing. I felt like it was like close but not quite. Mm -hmm. And indeed, it was the Parker House Hotel in Boston, like 1850 something. That maybe even a little later. That first had indoor plumbing. So like I did spend, and then you spend like a whole day like researching toilets down there, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, was that a good use of my time? Um, and like clothing and shoes and like, I, you know, so I made like um, kind of pages of that stuff. I think it is a good use of your time because when you get those things right, nobody notices. But woe betide you, you get them wrong, somebody's yeah. going to get you on it. Yeah. Now, I know you have taken uh, what is now a minor character mm -hmm. in Daughters of Nantucket and you're developing her into a next novel. How much are you comfortable talking about that? Oh, sure. So I'm happy to talk about the next one. So in writing, and I'm sure you experience this too, um, sometimes you have to kill your darlings, um, which is a term from Faulkner, um, and it means like getting rid of something you love, a scene or a character. If it's not serving the story, you just have to be ruthless at some point and edit that down. So I had two two competing best friends for um, Eliza. One was Mariah, Mariah one. The other was a character named Nell Starbuck. And I loved Nell. Nell was great, she was feisty, she was fun, she lived across the street. I pictured her at the time in the blue um, Victorian house on Upper Main Street, if you know it. Um, I've since moved her. So, um, but she, um, she had to go. She, there was no place for her really in this novel. And so uh, she wasn't a point of view character and she was stealing sort of power from Mariah and, and scenes and things from Mariah. So there's now one sentence and I found it today on page 71, I think, or 75 of the paperback that says something like, Eliza used to be, Eliza has grown closer with Mariah ever since her friend Nell Starbuck has um, 
been gone on this journey across the globe with her merchant husband. And so it wasn't planned, but I believe really firmly in a muse that helps me write. And when I'm tapped into the muse, good things happen. So um, I have since decided that the second book is that book. It's that sentence. It is Nell Starbuck on a global shopping spree, basically, with her merchant husband, Peter, and their daughter, Winifred, who grew up with the Macy girls and is their age. So it will start five years later, for those of you who read the book and have questions about things at the end of the book. You get answers in the second book. In the first 50 pages, you are with the Starbucks, um, and you get to see the Macy's, and you will see everybody and get a sense of where they have been and what's happened. And then, and then you pack up and go on completely different. Um, so the second book will be completely different, because you will go by Clipper Ship, which, by the way, is the fastest ship that ever sailed the seas to this day. Um, really? Yes. Still? Still, uh, without an engine. Yes. <laughs> Without a motor, just sails. Just sails. The fastest thing you can go in is a clipper ship, mm -hmm. and the the whole purpose was to the the sooner you could bring tea back from China, the fresher it would be, the more it would sell for. And they would race these clipper ships back from China. Um, and the Brits wanted to know how the Americans made them. They were American first, then the Brits came up with some. Um, they actually let them see their, their shipbuilding designs and things. And Anyway, so they go, so Peter Starbuck, he's a man of industry. He wants a clipper ship, bad. He gets a clipper ship, brings it to Nantucket, and takes his family around Cape Horn to San Francisco at the height of the gold rush and on to China, where calamity ensues. <laughs> uh, because I write disaster stories, apparently. Turns out. Turns out. So, and um, and fun fact: um, if you if you read the book and liked little Joseph Allen, he has grown up and has gone off to sea, and he will be a point of view character in in the second book. So, but to develop plan. that that point a little bit. Yeah. So, in a way. Yeah. I do think there's something to that in our writing life. So it turns out you do yeah. write historical fiction yeah. with a disaster thing. Turns out I, I am a thriller writer, which I didn't know. I wasn't <laughs> intending to write that. So there's, there's the setting all out to write, and then there's kind of a life. Don't mm -hmm. you find that it, it yeah. takes, and there you are in a direction you may not yeah. have anticipated. But talk to us, because we're going to open it up to questions. Okay. Talk a little bit about your process. Um, do you write every day? Do you, do you plot it all out? Are you a plotter, a pantser? Talk about that. Sure. So I do like to know the main events, the, the basics of the story. And each day, I like to kind of end the writing day. When I'm writing, I do write every day. Like right now, I'm on book tour, so not writing. But um, when I'm back to writing in a week or two, it'll be four to five days a week, and it'll be four hours or so. And um, I like to know where I'm going. Although when I sit down, I don't know the scene. I just know it starts somewhere or something. It's leading to something. Um, so I've written about 20 pages so far of, the, of this new one, 
and I know what has to happen in the first 50, but I don't outline like chapter by chapter in the first draft. I will then start to shape it and be more like, you know, structural about it in the second draft. Mm -hmm. um, and Danny Shapiro, who's a great writer, she writes both fiction and nonfiction, she also writes a for writers, she writes. Uh, she wrote a memoir. Uh, she wrote a like a how-to, you know, helpful book about writing, and she talks about it like deep sea diving. And I feel this is my process each day. I get to the computer. It's like deep sea diving. You can't just like jump in and go to the bottom. You will lose. You will black out. You you know you may die. I don't know. I'm never going to do it. But I know that you have to like acclimate and like right. get to pressure and levels and levels and levels and go down, down, down. And that's me at my computer. Like the first level is like, let's check emails, you know. <laughs> let's see what's on sale at Shop Up. And that's like the first level of writing for me. And then it gets to like, open up, let's open up the doc. Um, and reread what you wrote yesterday. And that's like getting used to that's going down. And then it's like, oh, that's right. You were going to fix, oh, yeah, that doesn't sound right. And the next thing you know, you're down at the ocean floor and you can explore. Mm -hmm. And you can really go deep. And so, and then she talks about it as like, you know, also you can't just get back up to the surface quickly either. And for me, that was. The kids have gotten off the school bus, and like sometimes you have to just reemerge really quickly. It's like three seventeen, and I still need a few more minutes to get acclimated. But there they are. So I come to the door like, "Hello, <laughs> children. How was your day?" Mom, are you okay? I'm like, I'm so good. <laughs> so it feels really, I love it so much. I love writing so much. Um, and so it is a joy each day. And as a former teacher, I give myself, this is part of my process. I have a little um, calendar from CVS, like the kinds with like plastic. It has like Maui on the cover or whatever. And yeah. I, and it, so I have one with grease, I have one with whatever. So, um, and I give myself a check, check plus or check minus every day for the whole Ooh. month. Yeah, I mean, wow. I, it keeps really? me, I know. But, but I'm like really easy on myself with like exercise. You know, like exercise, I'll be like, it was so good that you put on your Lululemons and wore them around the house. But with writing, it's like check minus, you know, so. Well, but this idea of the, the but deep But then it dive. adds up. It does add up. Even if it's all yeah. check minuses every day and I didn't hit the 1,000 words or 1,200 words, by the end of the month, it's a lot of check somethings mm -hmm. and it adds up. And the deep dive is a really perfect analogy. I am an example of someone who really didn't write as much raising children. I, I'm sort of the post-empty nest serious writer mm -hmm. because I, I just it was very hard to get yeah. to the ocean floor yeah. and I'm looking yeah. in the shortness of the day I love that analogy we'll take a short break and be back with the Ocean House author series here on WCRI And we're back with the Ocean House Author Series on WCRI. It's time for questions from all of you people about writing, about Julie's books, about 
whatever you want to ask. Yay. No spoilers. Right. I'm trying not to be a spoiler. I have a question, and if it turns out to be a question that is a spoiler, just if it's about the end, me. yeah, if it's about the end of the book, we should talk about it separately. <laughs> okay, on to the next. <laughs> Did you read uh, Ahab's wife? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't that wonderful? Amazing. I yeah. love Ahab's wife. And interestingly, in part of this whole muse thing, two things have happened to me. I'll try to, I'll keep it short. But um, one was, um, I read Ahab's wife on my Kindle because it's a really big novel. And I didn't discover it when it first came out. I read it more recently. And so I read it on my Kindle. Um, that being said, I just last weekend went to a book sale at my daughter's college. And there it was for a dollar or something. Oh. And I wanted it. I mean, now I have it. And I just saw it today. It's like prominently displayed on my bookshelf. And I'm so happy. A hardcover, original um, version of that book. So yeah, I love that book so much. And it did help me envision what I could do, you know, because she had done this other thing. Um, the second thing about, it's not about that, but I got in the mail just last week a letter from a Starbucks descendant. And it was a handwritten five-page awesome letter. She photocopied pictures. Her family wow. lived in one of the three bricks, which were Starbucks families. She doesn't know that my next book is about a Starbucks. She doesn't know that my main character is Winifred Starbucks. What is her name? Winifred Byer Starbucks. Wow. Okay, Julie, you were plugged in. Now, what, you, you were in the zeitgeist here. Yes. The walk with your daughter, the mm. Starbucks. <laughs> you, are, you are where right. you're meant to be. Yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah I feel like I will write yeah, historical no, fiction sort of for, forever now. Do you feel like you have fewer lane? Like, are, do you, you know, that's a really to? good question. So I'm working on a fourth thriller, and I've managed for now three and a half books to always have a very twisty turn. Um, will I always be able to do that? Mm. I don't know. No. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> I was She's on Nantucket <laughs> in September with a friend who dragged me to the Willing Museum, which I've been to for cocktails before, but yes. never actually. It's good for cocktails. Great for cocktails. Through, and it was just really fascinating to hear the mail. It's all a male point of view. Mm. So I applaud you for bringing these women to life because, you know, somebody has to beat out Beach Reed on Nantucket. I won't name her name, but maybe you should do it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> she would, and she's great, but oh, you know, yeah. this gives depth and history. It's not really a question, it's just, it's a really wonderful book, and I don't want to blow anything. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yay. Um, thank you. I feel like, um, yeah, I'm happy. I, I'm so proud of that. You know, I did not intend to, to do that. But like when the head of the Nantucket Athenaeum, you know, which is where Mariah Mitchell, that's the libraries, the Athenaeum, the head librarian put my book as like essential Nantucket reading. Like that's now like a new classic. It's really amazing. It's, it's very meaningful. And I do hope it it has, you know, a lasting power to, to bring those women to life. Um, yeah, so, and then there's something else I've been saying, I don't remember. Um, we yeah. have time for one more question, and then we will be in the back for signing and private questions. Yes. Quiet questions. Spoiler questions. 
we have one more question about anything. Do you start your books at the beginning? Oh, that's such a good question. Do I start my books at the beginning? I do really try to write chronologically. However, I, the idea for this book, as I mentioned, came about from the fire. Also, as I mentioned, the fire happens later in the book. I couldn't seem to get there. I kept writing and writing, and it kept moving. The fire just like kept moving farther away from my grasp. So I complained about it to my friend Trisha. I was like, Trisha, I want to write the fire. And she was like, so you're the author. Go write the fire. Like out of order. Like nobody will care. Nobody will know. And, I, and she's like, how much are you really like skipping? I was like, I don't know. There's like 50 pages where I feel like this has to happen and this has to happen. She's like, just leave that. Go write your fire. Go have fun writing your fire. And I did. I had so much fun writing my fire that it's pretty much the way it was in that first draft because I'd been holding on to it for about a year waiting to get to that point. And so that was written a little bit out of order. But what I learned about my characters under duress helped me write them better in the beginning so I could fill in the gaps better. And I knew them better because of the fire. And the second thing was, that was out of order was the prologue was the last thing I wrote. My book didn't have a prologue. And right before we sent it out, my agent said, I feel like we need to get everybody up to speed with Nantucket, like the whole history. Can you give the whole history of Nantucket up until the point of the fire in two pages? Like two and a half? Uh, Allison was like, can you just do that? And actually, I make fun of her, but it, I, I was like, I think I can. I just felt like by then I had yeah. now two years or more with them, and I knew that I could do the history in this way. And then somebody asked me, they said, oh, I love the way they interviewed me. I love the way you wrote the prologue in second person omniscient. And I was like, I did. <laughs> I had no recollection of that. There was nothing plannerly about it. It was your agents asking for this, go write it. But when I looked at it, it says, before you begin this tale, you must go back. And it's you. It's me talking to the reader and inviting you into this world. And um, I wrote that in like this very deep dive very quickly. I read it to my friend Trisha over the phone, Trisha of the Fire who's in the writing group, and she was like, oh, I got the goosebumps. You're good. You're good. And I was like, all right, I'm good. And so that was really I love a last. good prologue. Yeah. Thank you, Julie, Thank for you. coming. Thank you all. Thank you for joining us for this special broadcast of the Ocean House Author Series with Deborah Goodrich-Royce. Please tune in each month as we'll bring you a new Ocean House author series highlighting nationally best-selling and award-winning authors in a salon-style conversation. Hosted by Ocean House owner, actress, and best-selling author, Deborah Goodrich-Royce. WCRI is pleased to be partnering with the Ocean House to bring you this ongoing series highlighting the best and the brightest of the literary world. Thank you once again for joining us. And in the words of Margaret Atwood, in the end, we all become stories. <laughs>